Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, welcome back. So there's a couple things I want to talk about today. And I think a good place to start is with the stock market. You know, what, what especially caught my attention today was, was one stock in particular that I've followed for, I don't know, a couple of years now, and that stock is Tesla. Now, fortunately, you know, the whole time that I've been bearish on Tesla, I haven't been really actively shorting it, which is a, a good thing because today it actually topped $900 a share. Actually, for a while, it was heading close to uh, $1,000 a share. I think it was over $950. And to put that in perspective, you know, not that long ago, $300 was, was considered pretty high. Uh, Musk, Elon Musk's famous tweet from the summer of 2018 was, you know, the going private at $420, $420 a share. Of course, it was, you know, obviously untruthful and, and, and a scam, really. But 420, you know, 400 was was considered pretty high, and it was trading in the 200s. I think it might have been below 200 at some point uh, in the last year or two. And here we are, up around 900 dollars. Another way to put that in perspective, and, and I'm getting to more. This is more than just Tesla here, as goes to the title, the the heart of, I guess, the first topic of today's podcast. But 900, uh, as I was checking, I think 910, 920 dollars share amounted to a market cap of around 160-ish billion dollars. And obviously it was even higher than that at one point in the day. Now by the end of the day it actually lost like a hundred dollars in value. I was actually looking at shorting it today, but I was like, nah, you know, and this wasn't, you know, I don't short I don't do options generally, but I was genuinely considering, you know, adding some money to an account and, and just, you know, buying some put options. I didn't, which is fine. But to put that in perspective we're talking about a market cap that is exceeding or equal to roughly the market cap of General Motors, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler, and Nissan combined. I mean, that is insane. I mean, you look at the new, not even just cars on the road, because obviously Tesla hasn't been around as long as them, but, but new cars on the road. Yes, you know, Tesla Model 3, for one year at least, 2019 or 2018, was one of the better selling cars in the United States. Now, of course, that skews the data because it's like their only car that sells really well. I mean, their Model S, Model X, way more expensive. Their Roadster, they just don't sell very much. You know, but you look at them compared to, you know, those four companies that I just mentioned, Nissan, uh, uh, Fiat Chrysler, Ford, and GM. I mean, that's, they, they easily outpace that. And that's just, you know, in the United States, it's probably true around the world. Now, obviously, revenue and, and volume doesn't equal profitability. But the evidence that, that Tesla is a sustainably profitable company is still, as far as I'm considered, up in the air. I and mean, they're still riding the success to some extent of their Model 3. There's a lot of sketchiness with their accounting. And, and believe me, there's plenty of other smarter people on this topic, the Tesla Q community and others. That, that 
dive much more deeper into this. Um, plus, I mean, their next thing that, that they're kind of waiting for is the Model Y, which, I mean, they're not to the Cybertruck yet. The the Tesla Roadster, the, the new one, and the, uh, the Cybertruck, I mean, that's going to be pretty inconsequential, I think. Uh, the Cybertruck, sorry, not the Cybertruck, the... Um, the semi, I mean, those are still a ways away. The Cybertruck is very far away. I mean, Model Y is really what they're working on scaling up production for right now. And, I mean, people, I mean, the big criticism about the Model Y from the beginning is that it's basically a Model 3. It's just a little taller and a little bit more space in the back, but it's not that much bigger. Is it really going to lead to similar number of sales? And, and, you know, add to that the fact that, uh, and this kind of goes into to the, some deeper themes in today's podcast and a lot of my podcasts lately, but, but one of the, you know, other bullish things about Tesla in theory is, is this gigafactory that they've built in China to, you know, sell cars in China and, and you know, manufacture them more cheaply and, and not worry about some import tariffs if there are any and great. Well, what's going on in China right now? I mean, and how is that going to impact Chinese demand for, like, everything, let alone a luxury electrical vehicle car? Because that's what they are. I mean, even even the cheap Model 3s are still pretty pricey, and, and they're in the luxury range. They're the, the budget luxury, if you will. You know, they're, they're in the ballpark of a, a pretty nice... Uh, um, Audi or, or BMW or maybe a slightly less nice Mercedes, right? Those are all luxury brands. And so you have to wonder, you know, with this, this parabolic move up by Tesla, which which to some extent coincides, albeit to a smaller extent, a parabolic move to the upside by stocks. A never-ending, you know, sometimes parabolic, sometimes just a grind to the upside. I mean, it, it really begs the question, how much higher can this go? And, and for many years now, obviously, the answer to that question has been yes. <laughs> Just yes. I mean, how much higher can this go? Yes. It could go higher. Right? There's no answer to that question yet. How high can the NASDAQ or Apple or Tesla or Netflix or Amazon or Google or Microsoft or the broader S&P, Dow Jones, uh, various other you know, global indexes, how much higher can they go? The answer has been yes. But when you see these types of events in the markets, when you see a Tesla soar higher, doubling, coming close to tripling its, its market cap in the span of a couple months, and then ultimately, because it will ultimately collapse, I mean, it's not going to move up to like 1500 and then just hang out there. Never mind 900, it's not going to do that there either. You know, ultimately, it's going to give back a lot of this and, and, you know, eventually, I think, go much, much lower, double digits, maybe when it gets bought out, single digits, maybe zero, but but not 300 or 200 even. You know, when that epic collapse comes, it's going to con- coincide with probably a pretty big move down in the NASDAQ and just the broader stock market. And, I mean, those types of events, they can be catalysts as well as canaries in the coal mine for a bigger market event. This market is looking toppy, if, if that's a term. And, and no, that's not me trying to call the top, right? Maybe I'm just saying I'm not calling the top to cover my bases. Uh, because obviously the answer for a while now has been, yeah, it can go higher. <laughs> well, 
it's running into some headwinds that it hasn't seen before, right? And and Tesla is just one example of this this liquidity, this credit driven rocket up upwards in the broader market, but also in these very speculative companies. It's not really on the basis of fundamentals, just like the broader stock market isn't, right? I mean, why would we expect Tesla or any of these companies to really be on the basis of fundamentals? Uh, even if they have had a decent year, it doesn't justify this valuation relative to their volume, relative to their profits, earnings per share. No, none of it. It, it really makes you wonder if this is really a, a topping process, a blow-off top, if you will, because there are headwinds. Heading into 2020, there's already headwinds for the global economy, for the U.S. economy, already towards the end of the cycle, like we have been for a while now. You know, the inverted yield curve that had, uh, uh, you know, unflattened, uninverted, which is usually a you know, the inverted yield curve is a precursor, and then when it uninverts, that means we're just even closer to a recession. Now, of course, that is inverted again, or at least last time I checked. But, but you know, you had all of those types of signals. You just had poor economic growth in the U.S. and lagging economic growth in China and, and, you know, Germany on the brink of a recession, Italy and, and others. And, and now we have, you know, this black swan event, which I've just been harping on for going on two weeks now probably, and, and that's the coronavirus, the 2019 novel coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus out of China, right? In fact, I saw an article about this today, which I think is really just an example of just how much this is, is screwing things up, and that was that uh, Kia, as well as, I want to say Hyundai, but don't quote me on that, a major auto manufacturer in South Korea, that their factory lines are going to be shut down for a period of time, I mean, tentatively a week, probably longer than that, as this article that I was reading from Zero Hedge points out, shutting down because they're not getting the parts that they need out of China. And then keep in mind, Wuhan, you know, I mean, all these different areas, again, I think there's a piece on this recently in Zero Hedge, but, but all these different regions in China, a lot of them tend to be more specialized in certain uh, types of products. You know, of course... Here in the United States, and you know, Detroit was the automaker capital of the world, right? As as one example, you know, you have Silicon Valley, which is more tech and and startups and, and speculative type stuff, unicorns and whatnot these days. Um, you know, down south, uh, Houston or New Orleans, or you know, those are like oil products, petroleum, all that type of stuff. Um, and, and that's the case for a lot of you know, you have you have towns entire communities built around uh, you know steel plants maybe, maybe now maybe back in the day or or canning or you know food products and sometimes you know cities tend to well anyways the point of what I'm saying here is that Wuhan was a big auto manufacturing uh, town I mean some town city it was a massive city I want to say it was something like a, a fifth of the population was supported directly or indirectly by the auto industry right but I mean Make no mistake, what's going on in Wuhan right now in terms of, of factories shutting down, entire production lines that in turn feed production lines shutting down, that's, I mean, that's maybe the worst of it in Wuhan, obviously. But that has to some extent also been the case for, you know, most other major cities in China. 
most major cities in China have a pretty significant case count now by, you know, by now of, of the coronavirus. And I'll, I'll get more to that here in a second. Uh, the numbers and whatnot of this coronavirus, which we continue to track, uh, we being me and, and, and a lot of other people that are, are following this and, and official releases from China and other governments. But anyways, uh, you know, you, you have you know, hundreds of case counts in, in you know, Beijing, Shanghai, I, I believe. I, I don't know them all exactly, but, you know, um, Guan, Guangzhou, you know, all these other large uh, cities. Most provinces are in the hundreds of case counts, officially confirmed, probably much, much higher, right? And that's high enough for, for a lot of these shops, a lot of these factories, corporations and offices to just say, you know, let's, let's take a break. You know, and, and like I said, you know, these, these South Korean plants are saying, let's you know, take a break for a week. Well, you know, there's, there's some experts that are saying that, you know, best case scenario, let's say China does control this. And, and keep in mind, that doesn't mean that it's going to be controlled because what's happening in China could be replicated times 10 in India, Southeast Asia, Africa. And again, more about that in, in maybe a couple of minutes. Um, if this does get contained in China, it's not going to be in February or probably even March, you know, mark my words with this, probably going to be closer to April or May, you know, if that, depending on the real, you know, truth of just how bad this is inside of China, they may, you know, at some point it'll come under control, you know, but, but it could get very, very bad and be many, many, many months away, right? And, and then of course it becomes a seasonal problem, probably, as some have proposed that, that if this spreads enough and into enough areas that this becomes similar to the to the seasonal flu. You know, it, it, it has a very low case count for the summer months and then the winter because of uh, confined spaces and, and drier, cooler air, those viruses survive longer. And lo and behold, you, you have another outbreak on your hands, right? Um, anyways, months we're talking about of this type of disruption. And ultimately, I mean... I, you you have to ask at some at some point, and this goes back to my podcast from yesterday talking about China. You know the writing being on the wall. Can their manufacturing sector, can their in, uh, um, um, tech sector? I'm talking like Alibaba and and, and some of these other huge companies, uh, Huawei and whatnot. Can their food, their agriculture, their their poultry? and their, their cattle and livestock, can those industries survive this? And can their financial system? I mean, the Chinese financial system is what ultimately fuels this, this credit-driven bubble that they've been in for, for so long now. And, and can that survive this? As I said yesterday, I mean, they haven't phased a headwind like this probably since the Great Recession, but, but that was a totally different story back then, a different beast in a different country, different economy at that point in time, right? And, and so you have to ask yourself... How does that relate to the U.S. stock market, to the global stock market, the global economy, and unemployment numbers, and all of that? Are we kind of reaching a top here? I think we're going to get a really good experiment here, a real-life experiment, real-life case study that will probably be used decades in the future by, by you know, economics students and teachers and, and, and whatever, people like me. As to, you know, just what is the extent of power of a central bank and a government and their control over fiscal stimulus and 
you know, and the money supply and interest rates and all that. What is the extent of their control? Can they not only ward off a slowdown, but can they kick that can down the road for like 10 years and then deal with a global pandemic and all of the, the, you know, everybody's talking about, so there's this term in the medical world of sequelae, sequelae. Uh, it, it refers to not side effects, but the additional uh, conditions and complications that can arise. So for example, a good example would be chemotherapy. Chemotherapy used to treat cancers can, in many cases, be very effective in extending life or completely, you know, for all intents and purposes, curing the cancer, send it into remission. However, people that have had chemo, especially certain types of chemo, know that there's long-term sequelae associated with that. And, and it varies. It can damage their immune system. It can damage their bones, their connective tissue. It can damage their brain. It can damage their heart, their vessels, lungs, all these side effects, but really long-term complications or sequelae. And so the reason I bring that up is, you know, if we're talking about this global pandemic, this coronavirus, and, and the direct effects, the people out of work, the people that are sick, the people that are unfortunately dying, people in hospitals. Okay, we have all that, right? We have the sequelae, or sorry, we have the, the side effects of that, of, of maybe people not going to work and, and businesses shutting down and whatnot. But what is the sequelae of that? What does that mean for the broader financial system, the potency of central banks and their ability to ward off a recession or a complete when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply and utter collapse of the financial system, I think we're going to find out here over the next couple months. Because they have been injecting greater and greater amounts of, of liquidity into the system, whether it's China or the U.S. or Europe or whatever, for, for years now, for a decade plus. And, and they're already requiring quite a bit just to keep things afloat, repo market operations that continue to go on now that started all the way back in like September of 2019 are a great example of that. And so how much more do they have? How much more potency do they have? Or will they ultimately be shown to be really impotent at this point? That's a question we really have to ask. So anyways, back to this coronavirus. Quick update. I mean, I'm sure you guys follow these numbers. You know, As of now, when I'm recording this, this is uh, uh, Tuesday afternoon. A little after five o'clock Central Time, um, we we have case reports. You know, at this point or last time I checked, I'm driving right now, guys. You can't hear a bit of background noise. Uh, uh, case reports that went up about thirty-two ish hundred cases in you know from China, which is you know this is when they start reporting. But but the thing is that that you know the Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is, is usually like one of the first to report, but there's still some other pretty significant provinces that still have to report. <clears throat> and so we should be looking at numbers you know, approaching uh, you know, 24,000 cases 
you know, a rise of something like 4,000 cases, if I were to, to guess. And we continue to see the spread into, you know, the U.S., confirmed cases, the U.S., and, and Southeast Asia, and uh, Europe, and whatnot. But this was something that was brought up recently by, by Chris Martinson, as well as myself, for a while now. And that is why, you know, what's suspicious, or actually not even suspicious, but what's really concerning is the lack of reported cases for entire countries, even continents, South America and Africa, as of right now, have zero cases. Hey, the Middle East even has cases. It's, you know, the United Arab Emirates, I think mostly like Dubai and whatnot. They they have some confirmed cases, right? Um, Most of Europe does, and I just went through this, Southeast Asia, even India does, whatnot. Few, but, but they do. Uh, I think Russia does, South Korea does, and you know. But what about Africa and South America? I don't think it's because China just doesn't have trade relations with them or a tourist industry or, you know, there's just not travel because you can look flights up, you know, I, I, undoubtedly, if you go back three weeks from now, undoubtedly there were flights from Wuhan to probably at least some African cities, some South American cities, Right, or at least connecting flights that originated in Wuhan, right? And so you have to wonder, is it that there's not any cases there, or is it the poor healthcare infrastructure that has led to just these cases completely going unnoticed? And that's where it gets concerning, because we're getting further and further out from when this really began to go global, two, three weeks ago now, when you start to have confirmed cases abroad. In theory, you know, I'll I'll go back to the data, okay? There was an article put out that estimated the number of cases in Wuhan at a certain point in time based on really statistics and odds. They looked at how many cases had been exported out of Wuhan, how many people had flown out and spread the disease or, or, or had the disease outside of there. A lot of these were international. Maybe it was some domestic too. But anyways, they calculated from that. You know, they looked at the amount of air traffic and whatnot. And they said, well, this is the odds. You know, based on this many cases being exported, this is how many cases there probably were at this point in time. You know, two or whatever weeks ago. Because, you know, it wouldn't make sense. You know, two weeks ago there was maybe like a thousand people officially in Wuhan infected if that, and yet you had exported cases. I mean, this is a city of 11 million people. You know, does that sound realistic that somehow they managed to export like, you know, five or 10 cases or 40 cases from that, um, from, you know, a city, a population of 11 million, but people infected were only a thousand. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny minority. No, basically this paper said that, no, there's probably a lot more infected because, you know, the odds of this many cases being exported, it just doesn't make sense, right? And so based on that, you know, the odds, statistics would show that in light, all likelihood, there was a number of cases two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that were exported to countries like, you know, these countries that I'm always bringing up that don't have reported cases yet. Nigeria, Tanzania... Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa, you know, you just name whatever African country you want, and China probably has a pretty decent 
trade and, and, and even tourist relations with them. And of course, South America too. You know, uh, Colombia, Venezuela, gosh, I mean, when it goes there, I mean, that's, that's going to be heartbreaking. Brazil, Argentina, uh, Chile, Peru, Mexico. Mexico doesn't have any reported cases yet. Statistically speaking, if you're seeing exported cases to the United States, they almost for sure were exported there. And, and you know, today, you know, with China having taken the control measures they have, you know, the, the R-naught, which is not a constant variable that can't be changed, but actually does change regularly for whatever, you know, illness. It's, it's, it's a broad measure of, of how many people are infected on average by each infected individual. You know, it's probably decreased in China because of these control measures. You know, on the other hand, there's probably a lot of people going to the hospital because they're injured or because they think they're sick. And, and lo and behold, they do end up sick with the coronavirus. They may not have had it before, but they do now, right? And, and a lot of other cases. But, but as a whole, I would expect in a lot of these places are not to have gone down. But prior to all these measures put in place, you know, there's estimates of the are not hovering in, you know, from 2.5 to as high as 4.1 or maybe even higher. I mean, on average, an infected individual, this is in China, mind you, Slightly different environment, different culture, different healthcare system and whatnot. It, an infected individual on average would spread to two and a half to, to four people. Maybe higher, maybe a little less. And so put that in perspective for a country like Brazil, right? Or, or you know, pick your, pick your country. What is that equal in, in those countries in terms of, of you know, the case count today? Let's say five people. Five people went to five separate countries on this list that I'm talking about here that were infected. And each of those people spread it to three other people, and they spread it to three people. And this is all under the radar so far. You know, another estimate is that this thing doubles every, like, five to six-ish days, maybe seven days, the amount of cases. Because that's how long it takes, on average, for it to spread to another person and then for them to become symptomatic and spread it to another person, you know, uh, to, to, to double, essentially, Right? So if this is doubling every six days, right? Well, I mean, we're already getting to uncomfortable levels in some of these cities. And if people are totally ignorant to the fact that they have the coronavirus, they may be spreading to five people, right, over the course of this, right? This could be doubling every four days, right? Just for this thought experiment here. So you start with five, and over a 20-day period, you go from five to 10 to 20, to 40, right? And that's just an average estimate. It could be much, much higher. It could be less, obviously. But now you're dealing with 40 cases, and probably much, much more were exported, but 40 cases. Well, you know, people that are infected but not symptomatic yet, you're probably closer to 80 or 100 cases now, right? Another week's time, you're, you're in a couple hundred cases, right? Another week's time after that, you know, before you know it, we're talking about huge outbreaks, in some of these countries. And we may not know about it until then. This, I mean, and so, I mean, that that gives it such a potential to spread. And then what do those countries do? I mean, China, albeit not, you know, obviously the best healthcare system or in the world or the best you know, societal uh, you know, safety net or, 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 or government or whatever in the world, obviously, they were overwhelmed, though, by how quickly this spread, and, and they continue to be overwhelmed. What happens to Nigeria, 
what happens to India or Brazil or, God forbid, Venezuela? I mean, that's... And that's what it's ultimately going to amount to, I think. And we'll, we'll see this pop up in very large numbers, entire clusters, villages, neighborhoods, workplaces, schools, these huge outbreaks of this coronavirus a week, two weeks from now or whatever in some of these countries. And it's going to be spreading like a wildfire. And it's going to be impossible to contain except through you know extreme measures. And even then, they're going to be overwhelmed. On a brighter subject, I want to change topics here entirely away from the coronavirus and from the economy and to the 2020 election. Maybe a better topic, better, maybe not. And of course, you know, the big topic over these last couple of days that I want to touch base on, even though I'm in my 27th minute here of today's podcast, is Iowa, the Iowa caucus, which, you know, really is making a lot of people wonder why we do caucuses anymore, why the very first major event in Iowa is even a caucus in the first place. But, but you know, I, I get it. You know, Iowa's, it's Midwestern. It's, it's more rural in a lot of areas than, than a lot of other country, a lot of other states, you know, that do primaries or caucuses. It's, it's pretty white. I mean, it's, it's just not maybe the same variety that uh, the Democratic Party in particular would, would want to, to serve as maybe the very first state in this whole lineup of, of, you know, this, this primaries and, and caucuses, but, but it is Iowa. And, and Hey, let's be honest. Iowa has been fascinating and interesting. And I think they enjoy the attention for decades now. You know, of course I've been alive for all those decades, but I mean, it's been interesting for a while now and generally it goes fine. However, of course this time around, it's gotten absolutely terrible. In fact, as I'm recording, they're just working on reporting results now from the caucus yesterday. And, you know, preliminary results, even once the results are tallied up, almost are meaningless at this point. Now, I mean, again, preliminary results, last time I checked, obviously subject to change, is that uh, Sanders and, and Buttigieg, right? Mayor Pete, I'll call him. That they were, you know, the big winners with, with you know, Warren and Biden and Klobuchar, you know, trailing. And obviously everybody else as well. But the big problem with this is this app run by a company called like Shadow Incorporated. Right? A lot of sketchy things going on here. This is an app that they decided that they would have these probably, you know, caucus leaders download on their device. You know, the security of it is questionable. Uh, whatever. I mean, everybody, I remember listening to specials about this on NPR. NPR or M. NPR, M is in milk, Minnesota's version of NPR, weeks ago. About how, you know, why are we using this app and there's a lot of concerns about it. And, and you know, the, some people are saying this is fine. I mean, this is technology. We can trust technology and whatnot. But a lot of people are saying, no, like, if nothing else, this is going to throw into question the legitimacy of the results. Because even if there's not irregularities, you still have to wonder how, you know, can this be hacked? Can this be influenced? And that's just a, the worst thing that can happen in any election is, is for the legitimacy to be thrown into question. And they went ahead with it anyways. And it's been an absolutely, an absolute disaster, an unmitigated disaster. And it's totally thrown into question any of these results and for good reason. 
politicians on both sides of the aisle, and certainly the DNC, is shady. They have a history of shady business. Look what they did to poor old Bernie Sanders. Now, I know, politically, I mean, I, very few of my supporters, uh, supporters, listeners, are supporters of Bernie Sanders or a fan of him. But you can't deny the fact that in 2016, he got screwed over by the DNC. And, you know, if, if he does poorly in Iowa... There's already this poll that was supposed to come out and didn't because of irregularities. People are already saying, you know, this is, this is, this thing is rigged against uh, 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 Sanders, Bernie Sanders. Hope I've been saying Sanders. Uh, sometimes I get Biden and then Bernie mixed up, and I'll say Biden instead. But of course, I'm talking about Sanders. Um, this is just going to add to the illegitimacy. And and yeah, Mayor Pete, or or uh, 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 whoever else, you know, Sanders. It sounds like he's doing pretty decent. You know, Warren or Biden, you know, Mayor Pete and Sanders can say they did well, but says who? I mean, says this totally flawed process that's been called in question. And then Warren and Klobuchar and Biden can all say that, you know, you know, that's not even worry about those results because they were rigged or because they're questionable. Let's move on to New Hampshire. Right. I mean, that's or, you know, you can flip those roles in whatever way you want. It's a total disaster. And you do have to wonder, you know, was this intentional? Right? There's evidence, you know, as reported by Zero Hedge, ties from the Buttigieg. Buttigieg? I don't know if I'm saying it right. Ties from their campaign to uh, this this company. You know, they, they paid them some tens of thousands of dollars, uh, I think probably in 2019, for their efforts in, uh, you know, creating some... Uh, uh, like texting service to text, you know, potential voters and get the vote out or something along those lines, supporters of his campaign. But still, I mean, does that not look kind of shady? I mean, who signed off on that? And why was this company taking money from a potential candidate, right? Plus, there's the fact that the candidates, uh, the candidate himself, Mayor Pete, has been hugely supported by uh, some of these uh, uh, at least one of these, you know, high-level you know executives or whatever within this company. Plus, a lot of these executives, a lot of these staff members in this company, have a ton of ties to like the Obama campaign and the uh, uh, Hillary Clinton campaign, which both of which are you know obviously huge DNC-backed campaigns. A bunch of DNC hacks, Democratic hacks, right? Does that not throw in a question? I mean, that's a great way to vault this guy into to the middle of the race and maybe make him a clear-cut favorite or, or front-runner with the victory in Iowa. And, and, and it certainly can damage, you know, whoever the, the establishment doesn't like. It's sketchy. So that's the Democratic Party right now. That's their election. Anyways... Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Skipping around a lot, but, but you know, I'm going for, what, 35 minutes today. Uh, hope you enjoyed it, though. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today.